welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. We're back for another series, season, group of podcasts. We're back for another group of podcasts. I'm really happy to be back. I've got some good ones lined up for you. The first podcast I want to share with you is a conversation with Ben Jeans Houghton. We've been good, really good friends for, for years and years. We make art together under the name of the Arca Group, we make sculptures and films and stuff. The last thing we did was a dance performance with Nicole Vivian Watson last year. But in this conversation, I talk about Ben's solo work and in particular his two most recent works. One was a film called Second Life, which he made on a residency in Japan last year uh, or a few years ago and then edited over a long period. And it was shown at Block Projects in Sheffield and then I think in Glasgow as well. And the second project that we talk about in the conversation is a as yet unfinished film with a working title of Screaming Bird, Singing Dawn, Rainbow Mountain. And that footage, uh, the footage he talks about in the conversation that he filmed, was filmed while on a residency in Korea at Hongpi Art Centre. Um, and the direct translation of Hongpi, I think, uh, is Rainbow Hill, which is why where he got the title of Rainbow Mountain from. It's an ongoing project. He's writing and editing the film at the moment. And I was really excited to talk to Ben by the fire in his house about that project and about the thinking behind it. He's a fascinating guy and he's a really lovely human. So, yeah, uh, I will also put a link up to so you can see Second Life, the film made in Japan. I'll tweet that, put that on Facebook and then put it in the description of the episode as well. OK, enjoy the conversation with Ben. We go straight into talking about Second Life and the production of that film on the residency in Japan. A couple of years ago, I went to Japan and I got some funding to go based on uh, an idea inspired by the French director, Chris Marker, and he made that film, Sans Soleil, where he walks around Tokyo on the premises that it's a, you're seeing the footage that a cameraman has gleaned through his wanderings, and then you hear his kind of semi-poetic philosophical musings in the form of letters that he's written back to somebody. So she's reading these letters over the footage that he's filmed, and that always seemed like a really generous format um, and a very generative way to explore a subject that wasn't just uh, illustrative like you would actually find out what you thought whilst thinking it and then the document would almost be a vehicle that enabled that to happen. The document as in the film. Yeah, yeah. so this kind of uh, proximity to the subject unfolding as opposed to working out lots of ideas and then realising how to uh, visually illustrate those things. So did you actually apply with that as like a, a particular reference? Yeah, then? so, well, the first time I applied, I, can't, I just I don't think I did a very good job of explaining it, so it just sounded like I just wanted to go and wander around somewhere and not do anything specific, <laughs> and I didn't get it. And then the next year, I tweaked the same proposal uh, and put in more kind of reference to, like, you know, films like that, and mm. then talked more about that generative process, and then I got the funding. Mm. And then, so... The idea was to kind of go there with a few different places in mind, but very much kind of chase the camera. So as I started to notice something, um, let the things that I was um, seeing lead me into new situations. So the idea of a kind of uh, wonder, I guess there's some parity with like psychogeography and ideas of exploring like uh, something through place. And, and that being like an, uh, an important momentum, something that was going to kind of carry you through that wasn't just dictated by your own wants, but was dictated by 
the things that you happen to observe while you're in a certain mm. mindset. So you had places you wanted to go? Yes, I had a few places that I wanted to go, things that I kind of wanted to see. Um, but then invariably the stuff that was really good was all of the stuff I hadn't planned. Mm. You know, like I, th- I was getting really into improvisation at the time and I realised that um, when you, ca- you kind of hold a space for something to happen that isn't monopolised by a very specific want, then the thing that often comes out of it is better than you could have dreamed up or imagined you know it's like it's less um it's less specific and it happens in a more kind of organic way um and it feel it feels more i feel a lot more enthusiastic about it because i i think one of the things i really enjoy about art is exploring and discovering things and then i think trying to collapse that moment so that that's the thing that's being communicated Mm. uh, where you it has this kind of uh, agency that's based on chance and listening almost like you're reading and writing something at the same time as it comes into being that feels exciting Mm. and I think in the past I got a bit bogged down by having ideas and then feeling kind of beholden to just working out how to best illustrate them in film or Uh, kind of across the board to be honest I first encountered that with drawing like you'd have an idea for some drawing and then you'd sit down you spent four hours drawing or something and Mm. um, so that changed my drawing practice as well I started to um, just draw things very loosely not have anything specific in mind and kind of chase form and stuff and it was still figurative and it came into different um created lots of different images but i think with the japan but when i went to do it um it became like a real adventure um and it felt like the gap between how i was living in that time and how i was making art was collapsing until it was basically the same thing Mm. so i had this kind of because that every day you had your camera all day yeah had my camera all day would walk around um i I find that looking through a camera and walking in that way and kind of being quiet and observing puts me in a really calm contemplative space where the kind of chitter chatter of my inner monologue becomes more lucid and is less kind of polemic pros and cons in various things and starts to kind of express itself in a way that feels creative I guess it's weird, isn't it, with it, because with um, even with a, if you're taking photographs, well, I mean, I'm going to say this, and it probably isn't really quite true, but there's something about video where, like, because you can kind of have it on quite a lot, yeah, you're you're not having to make these kind of decisions about what to make. You're like capturing things. Yeah, it's happening. But you're also giving yourself this focus by being like, I am trying to notice things that might be good. It's quite, yeah, it's quite weird. So, like, were you literally just wandering around or did you have places you wanted to go? So in Tokyo, for example, yeah. were there places you... Um, so there were a few places I wanted to go. Like, I wanted to go to this robot restaurant I'd heard oh, about, yeah. which is kind of strangely spectacular thing um, that exists underground in, I think it was in Shinjuku. And I was fascinated by it because... Um, I know some of these ideas are post having been there, but I was fascinated by it because it seemed to be a place that was uh, in Japan, but made uh, in the image of people, uh, made in the image of what people assumed Japan to be from a position of otherness. So it's almost like, um, as opposed to this thing existing that people would experience from a position of otherness of coming from another country, it was created uh, for to sate that want. So it's not like the thing existed beforehand. It exists to say the assumption from a position of otherness or outsideness or ignorance of the. This place is literally like you watch a load of like 
LED flashing robots and dancers. Yeah, it's this, like stroboscopic, like cabaret, if, like yeah. <laughs> maxed out. But it's it's really weird. It kind of it does strobe between like underwhelming and overwhelming, like on repeat, and everything's changing. It's like a ninety minute like gifts <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's really really intense and it's kind of spectacular and then there are moments where you reach that kind of maxed out uh place where your sense state is being completely flooded mm. by all this stuff and then there are these kind of lulls where you're like oh it's all kind of meaningless yeah you know like there's uh it's, re- it's really interesting i it was one of the weirder experiences that I've ever had and it was completely engrossing and fascinating and I felt really kind of strangely shell-shocked afterwards. I mean, they even have, like, I think it's like a, a version of a kind of V2 bomber or something. Like, there's a bit that wow. has, like, a military aspect to it yeah, and then yeah. there are um, women dressed in cabaret costumes covered in LEDs hanging off, like, a plane that looks very similar to the plane that would have dropped the atomic bomb and there's all of these, like, stock motions on repeat and lots of, like, yipping and yelling and... Mm singing and stuff um but that so that was one of the places that i did want to go um and i managed to film in there um because i I put a little bit of tape over my camera that has a little blinking light and because i use a digital slr you it looks like a normal camera because you know you're not allowed to film and so i would be kind of posturing to look like i was taking photos but i was actually just collecting film um, and there are a few other places that I kind of specifically wanted to go. I wanted to go and see some aspects of manicured gardens and things like that, like that very aestheticized idea of nature that's been kind of like perfected to some degree in Japan. What is that like, formal gardening? Or... Yeah, it's like, yeah, formal gardening. Um, it's like the idea of intervening into nature and taking nature beyond itself into the kind of beatific vision of man. It's like nature's not just... Uh, perfect in and of itself that it could be improved upon <laughs> which is in, which is interesting and it, and it's not that, and that's not just uh, uh, the overall um, idea about nature in Japan there's a real love of like the accidental and the asymmetrical and the and non-intervention and things in states of decay and all of that stuff so it's just it's one part of right. Uh, a relationship with nature but I wanted to um, film some parts of that and then I went to some different temples um, and then I travelled through the country because the premise of the film is that you start uh, it's a first person film and you start on a plane travelling from Newcastle to Tokyo so you kind of go to this metropolis and then it goes to uh, Nara which is like an area where there are some temples um, and then it goes to uh, Kyoto, which is an area where there are lots of different um, temples and Zen gardens, things oh, like that. True, and it? then yeah. it goes to Fujisan, where the the district around Mount Fuji to Aokigahara Forest, which is at the base of the mountain, which where it's where the film ends. So it's a kind of long arc, and it has twelve chapters, and it talks about ideas of um, a, a kind of be- a beginning of the universe, astrology, uh, reincarnation magic, uh, dreaming, illusion, um, and it finishes off talking about um, suicide. And so it's a kind of sprawling long arc. It does have a narrative thread, but there's a lot that kind of happens in it. And although I really enjoyed making it and it was well received, I think there was a bit too much information in it. And I'm trying to 
in this next one that I'm working on at the moment, I'm trying to make it a little bit more coherent. And when you said there was too much information, was that because there was just so much to see in Japan, you took so much footage? Uh, or it's, I think it was more the way I addressed the narrative um, because it's very involved and some of the ideas are quite personal and I jump between a kind of discursive mode and then moments of like it where it's more poetic so the things that I'm saying like have a higher level of ambiguity and abstraction and I think it's easy to lose people uh, in that sense because I mean for me for myself like if I, I I would rather read poetry so I can like stop in the middle of a sentence and let something sink in and be like how do I feel about that or you know mm. read one poem from an anthology and go back to it a week later whereas in this it's just mercilessly chronological it's just an hour of me saying 8,000 words but in the show you in the exhibition at Block you had um, the scripts out on the floor and stuff yeah so people could kind of look into those things and it was on repeat Um, and and, I mean this is from a kind of a critical distance where I'm trying to find something to like build upon in a way but it, it went down well people at the private view came and people sat down for the whole hour and yeah. they didn't really talk through yeah. it and lots of people commented on how uh, odd that was because mm. you know the, the kind of theatre of a private view it has its own thing going on anyway it's almost not really about the work the work's the thing that brings this kind of social mechanism into play where people catch up and network and the rest of it but people seem to be quite involved in it and then the uh, the media player um, broke on the last chapter um, and then because I was there um, someone said oh why don't you read it out because the script was there so I just read out the last chapter and you don't actually see the kind of the end of the last shot which is just walking through the forest but then I enjoyed reading it out and people said that they thought it actually improved the situation because it brought what was a disembodied voice into an embodied position in the gallery mm-hmm. yeah. so then the person who was saying all this stuff was there saying it it was interesting using my own voice because in the past I've always written for uh, someone else to say things yeah. and there's a real security in that. You know, you you can create a, almost a fictional protagonist or you can yeah. embody a certain perspective and then have somebody else voice it and it has a kind of a distance to it, an authority. So you, yeah. you can say things in a different way. Um, and I realised that having done that for so long and writing something that was quite personal at points because it's some of it's semi-autobiographical the things that I'm saying um, that I thought it was important that I took responsibility for the things that I was saying because they were very much my my perspective on a variety mm. of uh, quite loaded subjects and then so I did I did that and it was really difficult to begin with because I think every, well, most people don't like the sound of their own voice um, but yeah I was happy with it in the end and it set me up um, with a model which was uh, having an idea, an open idea, going somewhere, exploring something in a generative sense, and then picking a, picking out what those things are through the imagery and the experience of exploring it, and then coming home and having an extended period of time to reflect on those things and then work out what is this, this essay, this film essay, actually about. Mm. So I went there with the premise of making an essay uh, sorry, so this this time around I went to South Korea. Korea, South Korea yeah, for two, two months to Busan on the south coast with the idea of making a film that played more on like ideas of um, kind of almost comparative religious studies, looking at um, 
Buddhism, Christianity, and shamanism in Korea, and seeing kind of how those things interact. What they all in so that yeah. so they're all kind of present in yeah, South Korea. All, didn't yeah, they? they're all present. It's it's really fascinating uh, context. So the idea was to go there and to um, go to various sites that embodied aspects of those different ideologies, and then meet people and the kind of protagonists that populate those different ideas and then see where the parities between those different things and the disparities were and in in those kind of like um, harmonies and tensions have a discursive dialogue that played out that kind of described some of those things whilst experiencing them and that is that is what happened um did you speak to people then did you have a translation yeah so i was really lucky to have two people who very generously uh, gave their time towards translation. Um, one was a woman called Arm, who was also on uh, an exchange at a residency there at the time, and she studied at Slade, so her English was great, and she understood the the essence of the kind of questions that I was asking. So rather than it being that kind of pragmatic literalism that might happen a lot with translation, she could really understand why I was asking a question which means that she could give me the answer in a way that made it you know made the that feeling that understanding um available so it wasn't kind of picking our way through a a literalism and then um, a woman called Na Young as well who was uh in charge of the residence she she was incredibly generous with her time and we hung out and went to different things together uh, and visited different people um, and she also arranged for me to meet some mudang, which are shamans, and they're typically women. Um, and they um, they either inherit their shamanism to to a degree through um, a hereditary line, usually matrilinear, getting passed down, or there's this thing called a spirit sickness, which is something that happens to people in Korean society. So they would feel themselves either with like a physical affliction or like a physical illness or a mental illness and it's something they can't quite put their finger on it can't be fixed through normal means but it's this kind of bodily or mental discontent something's Mm -hmm. up and then people typically have these kind of fever dreams that start to lean on them and they realize and because there's a culture of this they can place that they start to realize that there's something that they're meant to be doing that they're not already doing um, some really interesting examples are uh, some people have it when they're very young. Um, there was uh, a story told to me by one shaman about another shaman who, when she was uh, a child, when she was like seven or eight or something, um, she had a dream that she had to go to a certain place and dig in the ground. And she went there and she dug up an unmarked grave of a shaman and all of their tools, the ritual tools that they would have used, she inherited as a kid. And so she was someone who didn't belong to a matrilinear tradition. Mm. She was someone who had a spirit sickness, followed these sort of subconscious intuitions or messages and found something and that unfolded into the course of what was, you know, uh, her life. So how many, what, what was the name of the shaman? So what's the, what's the term? Mudang. Uh, Mudang? Yeah, Mudang. M-U-D-A-N-G. So how many Mudang did you speak to? Uh, I spoke to three or four, mainly called um, Kim Dong-un, and she lives near Busan on the south coast, and um, she's in her 60s, and she's the person I spent the most time with. She was doing a 
a six-day um, ritual for a village, um, a fishing village. And so I went to some of the things. The ritual performances are called goots, but sometimes they get pronounced as cut, uh, like kut. Um, and they involve lots of um, dancing and offerings made to spirits. Um, there's lots of storytelling. There's lots of kind of set and setting things, creating an environment um, that establishes the kind of cultural context of shamanism and then acting within that on behalf of people um, who they're offering essentially a service to. Mm. Um, so is it like the villages of what did they? What was the service? So that was um, it. Started with there was the head of a village who had some problems uh, essentially and had commissioned the goot. Um, and so the first ritual which I was at was just in his home. So it's just um, so you, uh, mudangs are essentially trance mediums. So they create. Um, an environment through music and dance where you could describe it as them shifting the kind of egoic part of themselves out of the way so that something else that seems that is uh, perceived to be external enters them and then they speak on behalf of that and then that voice tends to seem to have more um, I'm trying to use language that is like not objective to talk about this because I, I experience those things and I just believe it sure. but I, it's it's difficult because I feel like a responsibility not just to say it's all real because then I feel like <laughs> the ideas can be dismissed from a position where you don't believe in them and then you people could maybe like stop listening they'll be like oh, I don't believe in that it's, but and so I'm trying to well I mean just just use the language that they they would use like okay. it's, let's put aside yeah the question of like Okay, so it's, it's just interesting to hear yeah. about the practice. Yeah, so she, um, so generally a mudang will have like a, a chorus of musicians and they play a variety of um, brass gongs and cymbals and it's a kind of uh, percussive, almost like atonal, um, called like truncated percussion. It's It's very free. It's like improvised music to the nth degree. Melody is something that by the time you've noticed it, it's changed, mm. if that makes sense. So they're creating this very like energized, loud environment that has a momentum to it that is always changing. So it's, what's the head of the village doing at this point? So, um, okay, so... In that, in that particular ritual, in yeah. his house. So the head of the village, if you just imagine you're sitting in a square room and you're facing forwards. In the left corner is the head of the village who is standing quite like soberly and quietly. In the middle of the room, there's a woman in her 60s who's wearing a whole rainbow of kind of um, ornamental, uh, traditional clothing and has a variety of uh, ritual tools as well. To her right are a couple of generations of other mudang who are supporting her activities of which she's the head of. To your left on the floor, there's an arc of uh, four men sitting down, three playing um, brass cymbals uh, and gongs, and one playing a boog, which is like a ritual drum that is usually uh, made, some of the ones that have kind of more provenance are usually made from a tree that someone hung themselves on. Wow. Yeah, so the drum that uh, this man was playing was one of those drums because it was inherited from uh, the Mudang's father and uh, Na Young found out about um, Kim Dong-un through a film made 
by an Australian percussionist who came to visit with her father some years beforehand to collaborate. And so we watched that film together and she made the contact. And so that's kind of how it was unfolding. So um, the ritual percussion starts in kind of waves. So sometimes it's very clanging, very loud, very present, and then it passes um, away into almost silence, at which point um, the mudang is orating either um, tales that have been learned, where she's basically describing this context. She's almost creating this spiritual landscape. And then she, uh, the next thing that she did was she used a knife that had streamers on it and a dead fish to guide a ghost, um, one of the ancestors of this man, uh, into the dead fish. So the, the idea of the disembodied entering the, um, the body of something that is matter without life and then passing from that fish into her and then her whole um, manner changed and her voice changes and then she starts to say a variety of prophetic things. So, so who's, the, who's the ghost that she's kind of put into um, the fish? So she calls upon a whole pantheon of deities ah, okay. to kind of support yeah, yeah. her. It's not like a specific thing to the village, oh, it's like No, but, this, but the person that she called in was one of the uh, fisherman's past relatives, right, okay. an ancestor who still had a vested interest in it. So m- most of Korean shamanism is about ancestor worship, but it's, it's more about veneration and placation. So it's as likely that one of your ancestors is pissed off with you, so your <laughs> luck is bad, yeah. so you need to give them some rice wine, as it is that one of them is like looking after you and trying to kind of benevolently guide, yeah, yeah, guide yeah. you because um, they see... A kind of there's a familial spiritual ecosystem at play mm. where you are not just an embodied part of all of your ancestry because of your DNA because you, I mean we literally are made of all of the parts of our DNA that our ancestors uh, either passed on or switched off you know we have all the junk DNA and within our lifetime our DNA changes so if you have a kid at some point in your life it'll be it'll be a different kid you'd have later in your life and there's a lot of talk about like trauma and things being passed through families so. There's this idea that everyone has an opportunity to some degree to minimise the biological traumas that are locked inside their DNA before they pass them on to their children through procreation, etc. So uh, along with being the kind of embodied um, end of a reverse family tree, you know, because we have our parents and our parents' parents, and Mm. you only go a few generations back and it's taken 20-odd people that are now embodied Mm. in just you. Um, Because we often think about family trees going out, you know, from a, a point and traveling down so that you know you have your brother and a sister and you have kids and it gets bigger and bigger mm. but there's the opposite version of the family tree where everything that came before is consistently being condensed that and is, embodied that's the fact that's family tree because people are normally trying to trace their lineage aren't they their um what's the word herit you know but going back aren't they yeah yeah but when you uh if you classically imagine the family tree and the kind of the roots traveling downwards and so you know you find cousins of cousins and you know, a king so-and-so is now part of X amount of hundreds of people because of all of these things going down. Mm. It's just that idea that every every person has all of these thousands of generations embodied within them. And there's much, um, there's much that you would never know going further back. So for instance, within the tradition, they would venerate at least kind of three generations back. Right, so right. despite you never having met your great-great-grandfather, they would who they were would be a part of your life and would be venerated on their birthdays, etc., etc., etc. And so, um, in this situation, what was it? A mem- it was a member of the yeah. So it was a member of the man's family. family, and basically he said loads of very personal stuff uh, about the man, and the the message essentially was that 
the man found it very difficult to be in this kind of patriarchal position within his family and within the community, and that he was actually a very emotional, like sensitive person, but he felt that he couldn't um, express aspects of those sensitivities without compromising his worth as a position uh, within the family and within the society of the village, and that he was really depressed and that he didn't know how to talk to anyone about it. He didn't know what what to do and he was worried because it was changing who he was as a person and while she's saying this his wife is in tears and the family you can see that they're hearing this for the first time and he's clearly done a really good job of hiding it or from them and being this kind of stoic um pillar of the community and so essentially the mudang was offering his family through this discourse an opportunity to gather around and to mm. help him express his emotions and become kind of part of that in a healthy sense. So there's, it's it's almost like a ritualized performative social intervention mm. where some uh, the the mudang essentially is offering invested parties an opportunity for emotional agency where they can help this person that they care about and she can say things that he feels unable to say. But in that situation, it is for them voiced by an ancestor who has yeah. come in to say those things. And what's your position? Like, was it, were they okay with you filming, for example? Mm. So Nayang did um, uh, create, made the introductions, and she also explained to them why I was there. And by this point as well, I had told Nayang more about who I was and why I was there, because my interest in magic um, in general, and by magic I mean a relationship with something that is otherwise unseen but present and engaged with by people who feel, you know, has meaning and agency in their lives. I'd had told her about what I felt about magic and about experiences that I'd had growing up that I couldn't quantify in the atheist household and, you know, the the community and worldview that is North, you know, Northeast England growing up and that much of my interest in these things was kind of branching out into the world uh, in a way where I could investigate those things outside of the context that I grew up in or the world that I live in. And so she knew that I cared about what I was looking into and I wasn't coming at it from a position of, like, scepticism. Sure. I was coming at it from a position of, uh, like, embodied experience and she explained that to the mudang beforehand and she said because of that she was willing to let me and then what about the yeah. you know the, the the guy who was having the ritual done his family they were just kind of the mudang is like the boss right 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 yeah. so if like you're people are scared of mudang as well really yeah like there's a there's an amazing reverence like when you're around them and around other people like they really like she's one of the most powerful women I've ever met, just the way she holds herself. And when we were talking afterwards, she's just chain smoking cigarettes and like looking straight at me. And it's like, she was, yeah, like, a, I guess like a force of nature. That's yeah, how it yeah, feels. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very compelling when someone is powerful in a role where they're enabling great emotional change mm -hmm. in a way that seems to be or hasn't yet been otherwise uh generated or affected like the idea that someone from outside say a family can walk in and empower that family mm. towards a transformation that will help all of them like that's recognized and kind of like venerated to quite 
it's quite a degree. And then also they're not they're not just um, completely like benevolent in a in a sense. You know, they're not just this yeah. like very overtly caring passive person they're like an active person who will wrestle a ghost like out of the immaterial <laughs> world put it inside their body and then just call everyone's shit out to like help them out and so what then, what were the other so she, you said she was doing like six days or four days or yeah something so ritual. a lot of it is the recanting of uh, traditional songs and like folkloric performative ritual events and and the whole thing is i think it's kind of like weaving this set and setting this kind of substantive mm. context that creates a platform from within which all of that agency arrives and because it's performative a lot of the stuff that is happening as it's unfolding is a kind of oral history it's an oral tradition which is really right. important to them because they almost got completely wiped out by christianity when it arrived was, I, I don't know the history of Christianity I, so in really Korea. Bad then. With dates, but in general, yeah, okay, in but, life. Yeah. But so basically, Christianity arrived in Korea, coked everyone up with morality, got <laughs> like a, a certain version of morality, uh, created these big whirlwinds of people going around the country, burning all of their indigenous history, um, wow. murdered loads of shaman, wow. openly murdered loads of shaman, and so shamanism went underground in the same way it has in lots of other uh, countries but it retained a lot of the its te technology so to speak in a way that say in england was dealt like a really severe blow i think essentially the in terms of its kind of pagan history maybe. yeah because i think there's there's something it seems like if something is worth knowing and passing on at some point someone realized that the best way to um to keep that alive that knowledge alive uh, in an active way was to embody it and to essentially clothe it in poetry because you could say a poem to someone essentially you could pass a knowledge to someone and knowing through poetry and you could see if they were moved and if they were moved you knew that they understood whereas if you wrote that thing down it, it becomes uh, literal and then that that thing in its literality can be edited can be mm. changed can be taken from a certain perspective. And that's one of the problems of literalism onto the poetry of kind of religion and all of those messages is that if you if you think something means a certain thing, you can twist it while it's poetic or they, or they try to twist those things while they're poetic. But essentially why, um, why Mudang exist in a horrible technological metaphor is like an organic hard drive that is keeping um, and, and information alive through performativity. So things aren't written down in that. Uh, not in the same or... sense. So you might have some of the um, some of the uh, mythologies, some mm -hmm. of the folklore, some of those stories might be written down to some degree. But the enactment of it is something that can only be learnt from Mudang to pupil. So it's always a lineage. There's always something being passed on. And was the Mudang you? Met, I've forgotten her name, sorry. Kim Dong-un. Kim, if Was yeah. Kim Dong-un like training other younger Mudangs? Yeah, uh, her daughters. So mm -hmm. she was part of a uh, uh, hereditary tradition. So she had three daughters and they were all training. But um, they're amazing performers as well. Like they can sing on lots of different scales and they can project and they can dance for like hours. Like it's really mm. kind of this arduous stuff. On the last day that I saw her perform, she... Um, she's in her 60s and she's jumping up and down like at a rave and she's whipping these streamers around and then she lifted like a, this huge brass pot full of rice up with her like teeth and her eyes are rolling back in her head and stuff and so there's there's this sense of kind of power that's coming from orchestrating this performative 
context between invested parties. So you have the people who are the audience who are not usually passive. There's moments where they're coming up to give offerings. Um, but it kind of branches out into this very energetic, um, yeah, amazing thing. Like, even if you looked at it from a position of scepticism and you thought ghosts don't exist and there is, there is no uh, dialogue with disembodied consciousnesses and all of those things, even if you looked at it as like a pra pragmatic performative exercise that enables psychological and social change, it's still just like powerful. Like you probably strip it of part of its reality by framing it that way. But there's no denying that even in a pragmatic sense that it affects positive change for people. So did you manage to film on all of these dates? Like, I'm just, in my head... Yeah, three of the days I Amazing. went to film things. Um, and is that the main body of the footage you've collected? Or is uh, it... No, not at all. So that's, uh, so that's one part of it. A lot of the footage is this kind of... Um, is wandering. Uh, there's amazing mm, okay. markets there. Um, I went to lots of temples... Um, I met with Buddhist monks and got to interview them and talk to them about their perspectives on a variety of things. Um, I went to visit fortune tellers. Um, the place where I was staying uh, was called Hong Ti Art Center and it was on the coast. And so every day if I wanted to get into the city center, I'd walk along, I'd have to kind of walk along this beach called Daidapo Beach and then I'd get a train into the city. And the beach became this amazing kind of locus for everything I was thinking about in terms of relationships between material and immaterial worlds and different ways of occupying space and performativity. So when I would walk down the beach, for instance, the, the beach is on an estuary, uh, an estuary and there's a peninsula with these two mountains kind of to, to the right of it. And it's a famous spot in Korea because the sun sets between these two mountains for a part of the year. So it's this kind of beautiful picturesque mm. sunset. So on most evenings when the weather's fair, you'll have between kind of two and ten bridal couples all posing with their photographers in front of the sunset, like daily, at the same time as you've got like drones whipping overhead because they've become really popular consumer drones. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're walking along the tide line and the low tide is littered with um, ritual candles, apples, oranges and pig's heads that have washed up through the estuary because they've all been used as offerings because a beach is... Uh, is an important place for those kind of performative rituals because mm -hmm. you you offer the objects at a threshold site, a place that's seen to be kind of a boundary between two states of being, the kind of mm. the material and the liquid, and the liquid takes those things. So, um, yeah, I'd walk along in the morning and you might see one mudang on her own with her drum or with her cymbal and a kind of t almost a table laid of offerings in front of her and possibly some streamers and flags and she would be doing either work for herself on behalf of someone else uh, or you might see I saw a, uh, an old mudang on the beach with a mother and daughter and she was kind of uh, whipping the mother with this really long vegetable like this long kind of streamer leafed vegetable um, and I talked to someone else about that and they said that there are lots of ideas about certain plants having certain um, qualities and that they could absorb certain energies. So through the, this kind of act, um, this performative act, energies are being changed and moved around and a kind of a healing is happening. Are these seen as f fairly like everyday parts of so, Korean life or is it particular? was it the area you were in? Or yeah. was it no, so I think... It is seen as a part of life. There's a really interesting tension between uh, 
capitalism, um, the influx of those um, ideas and ways of being, and the ritual technologies and kind of um, traditions that are at play. So sometimes there are odds with each other. So you might. Um, so it's more common now that younger people are starting to get rid of various. Uh, almost national days where ancestor veneration and worship would happen. So there's a move away from some of those things, while mm. some of those people who would say uh, be embracing technology wouldn't drop any of those things. So they'd be in a household with the kind of modern technology. There might be in a work that involves um, very very modern ideas, but at yeah. the same time they have a family shrine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's also a really interesting playoff between ideas of materialism and spirituality because um, when a mudang uh, is performing a lot of the time money is made as offerings so the offering is made symbolically to the absent immaterial entity whether it's a god or a shin which is like a ghost or an ancestor um, but it's often like tucked in the belt of the mudang as they're performing but that money never goes to the mudang it's always passed to the uh, musicians. Because the Mudang is already paid. Because the Mudang is paid and it's a service. So they, the first thing a Mudang would do, would, there'd be a kind of consultation where they would talk with their pantheon of spirits after conversing with someone who came who had you know a specific want. Um, and then they would say, this is what the spirits say that I should do. And this is how much it's going to cost you. you know, and, and some of that will be the pay for the Mudang, but some of that will be we need 50 apples and we need yeah, sure. a pig and we need all of these kind of different things. When you bring that footage back back here and you're now like kind of looking through it and you're thinking yeah. like, what? how do you think about it? Do you think about it as kind of, what am I trying to say, like anthropological? Like you investigating something that's happening in the world or do you think about it just as imagery or? Uh, it's like, it's interesting, like some... Because the J- Japanese film was very impressionistic and it's very much you as like an observer yeah. who was an outsider just yeah. kind of looking at things. Yeah. Because this sounds much more like a, almost tr- you're collecting documentary footage or something. Yeah, I think one of the things that I was mindful of in the Japanese film was that I'm someone who's not Japanese who's commenting on Japanese culture. So like that was something that was always in the back of my mind when I was writing the essay and that was one of the things that made me think, oh, I need to put this into my own voice. Mm, Um, And I need to assert that these are my opinions about my experiences. So that's something that I'd say is one of the premises of this like mode of working, is that I'm commenting on my experiences from the position of my experience. Although right now I'm directly describing aspects of Korean culture, it's from my experience of them. So it's it's tricky because i don't you know i haven't studied ethnography or anthropology and um i i think that possibly if i had then i wouldn't have the uh i wouldn't have the space to have an improvised semi-philosophical perspective on my own experiences because i would feel the weight of what it is to be a white person in a different country commenting on something from my position yeah. of otherness in a way that could be either like problematic or damning or the continuation of a canon of a certain type of thought or a deliberate rebuttal of that canon. So there's, I'm trying to, with these pieces of work, I'm trying to keep it as open and kind of generative as it can be, uh, trying to 
dismantle inherited ideas of a responsibility that I have to say not be biased. Like one of the things that happened in the Japan film that will happen in this film is that I will mix fact and fictions together sure. in a sense. So in the Japan film, I talk from a perspective about certain things that happened. And some of the ones that seem very strange or not possible are actually from direct experience. And some of the ones that are more conservative are not things that I experienced. But trying to inhabit a place where this, I'm being a, a, a protagonist in a sense, but coming from a, a place of self where I am the, the, the perspective that is kind of transversing this landscape. Yeah, when I look at the footage, I mean, some of it does have like that ethnographic quality because it's it has an impartiality to it, it has a passivity to it. I'm you're sitting not, down you're not in and I'm not ritual, in the ritual. Yeah. You know, I wasn't, I didn't give an offer. Did you ever take it, except, take part in any of the rituals then? Uh, no, not specifically. Like the, all of the ones that I saw were part of something that was happening for somebody else. Right. So yeah. it's just kind of passive. But you like I, I hadn't commissioned one and therefore no, you weren't in it. But then there's an undercurrent as well that's running through the film that's going to be addressed, which is that because I have my own ritual, magical practice from my own position, um, I did a three-hour ritual to get this residency. Um, so there are elements of my own interest in practice of magic that are imbued into the whole thing as it unfolded. So one of the things that I did in my ritual was uh, I wanted, to, I stated, and then boiled down through sigil magic, which is the idea of uh, making a symbol from uh, uh, a written intent that is idiosyncratic. So you kind of boil down an intent through the shapes of its letters into one symbol that's never existed before. And that because that symbol has never existed before, you can kind of impress it upon your own subconscious. One way to look at it is that you impress it upon your own subconscious and that it... Um, it kind of drips down into you, is absorbed, while your conscious mind is in some way obfuscated by the new symbol that you've created that it's never seen before. And the idea is that you're posting this intent down into the unmanifest part of reality, which is just waiting um, to be told what to do, usually by nature. But in magic, one of the ideas is that we have creative agency, mm -hmm. symbolic language, so we can actually interject into that um, into the un unmanifest part of reality um, that will then come to be in the future. So this idea of kind of leaning onto probabilities with intent, or some people would say, uh, you know, ideas of manifestation or creative, um, what's it called? It's almost like positive thinking, really. But so because I did a ritual, one of the things that uh, was a direct intention within that ritual was to uh, meet Mudan, um, and I worded it within the ritual that then got boiled down in a way that was kind of open to plurality, so different people, not just one. Um, and I'd meet people who were happy to talk to me in a kind of cultural exchange way, coming from a place of both being practitioners to very wildly different degrees. You know, mm. I'm not a woman of power who commands, you know, an orchestra of people and all of those things, but I do practice magic for myself uh, in my life. And so one of the things that happened was I got to meet um, Kim Dong-un. Now, I got to meet Kim Dong-un because Nayeon was generous enough and knew enough about this film that she'd seen in the past to make those connections and make yeah, the introduction. See, yeah. But in a magical sense, the impetus between, oh, do I, don't I do this? It, it's like leaning into various probabilities. So it's not like you make something from nothing. 
it's that you affect the, the causal narrative fabric of everything until things start to unravel and unfold in sort of natural ways. But one of the pronounced versions that was completely separate from that, uh, one of the outcomes, and it's difficult because I'm not trying to prove that magic exists because I think the proof is kind of anathema to how magic works. I think when you try to uh, quantify it, it's almost like sucking the air out of a greenhouse. Because I think that magic really works in a place where you uh, you hold a space for something to be permissible. And if the more open to improvisation it is, the more it can grow and it's through its own nature and finish off in the kind of image that you desire. So the, the, uh, the ritual that I did, one of the outcomes was to meet Mudang. And so when I went to Seoul for three days at the end, through a variety of what you could call coincidences, um, I bumped into people and then ended up meeting a shaman over the course of just one day in um, Seoul. And then uh, I went into her shop, and it's one of the oldest shops in Seoul that sells lots of ritual equipment uh, instruments that are used by shaman. And I was walking around and I noticed that she was looking at me, um, but we didn't have any shared language. And then she came over and she kind of gestured, I want to have a coffee. So I said, yeah, you know, nodded yes. And she gave me a coffee. And then we continued to kind of share these uh, glances. I think she must have been in her 40s, something like that. And um, and then she rang someone on the phone and she beckoned me over and she'd rung her friend to translate for her. And she said through her friend that she felt like it was important that I had arrived and a variety of... Uh, other things and then I explained to uh, the, her friend through the phone why I was there and then it became very emotional and she had t tears in her eyes she said that she knew I was coming and um, and then she enthused that if I could come back the next day her friend would come and we could have a conversation through their translation and then so we did that and it was an amazing day of kind of cultural exchange I showed them aspects of uh, sigil magic and candle magic they showed me aspects of a kind of korean uh, sigil magic which is called bujok where people uh, create statements using um, ink made of uh, cinnabar this like red, red mineral on yellow mulberry paper and um yeah and it was just this amazing end to my time there and so i think going into a situation where your interest is not just external but embodied yeah means yeah, that yeah. people um interact with you on a one-on-one -on -one way where the problems of say the translation or documentation of a culture from a position of otherness are nullified to some degree because instead of it being that uh, one position looking at another it's two positions looking at each other and talking yeah. so, I think so in that, that, in that situation did you film in the no so I didn't film any of that uh, okay. because so how you kind of use that experience in the I mean, work I, because it's um, because it's a kind of storytelling that's happening in the film um, it will be just recanting that yeah, sure. in its absence but over the top of uh, quite open footage so a lot of the footage I get is long shots of just walking or observing or kind of like noticing one thing mm. like and and now that i've come back i've realized that the essay isn't just about uh korean shamanism but it uses korea as a landscape and uh the performative aspect of shamanism as one part of a wider essay so the essay talks about um gnosticism 
and there are various Gnostic perspectives, some of them uh, in line with Christianity, some of them uh, opposed to Christian narratives. Um, but they talk about different cosmogenesis of like how the universe may have come together. One of the kind of Gnostic themes is that consciousness is trapped inside matter and uh, through um, spiritual practice can be liberated from it, which is a theme that you see in um, mm. Buddhism also. This idea yeah. that we're in Maya right now this uh, it's like a the material world it's sort of like almost like a kind of hell uh, <laughs> which means which is pretty relatable <laughs> tbh <laughs> but the uh, the uh, the idea of this this so mayor exists and it's it's this material world and then we're in samsara this cycle of learning through suffering yeah. so there are parities between that and gnosticism but why i'm looking at gnosticism is that it has a different take on christianity and then christianity uh, a certain type of christianity uh, in an ideological sense, kind of virally got inside the Korean culture and mm, changed things. Sure. And that's something that's a very real part of uh, of a Mudang's life. Mm. Is you know they're within this context. They lost yes. people within their uh, hereditary lines to those things. And then I, through those things, I talk about ideas of simulation theory and ancestor simulations. This idea that we may be trapped inside a simulation that is playing out for something to be kind of worked out mm. and that consciousness is a kind of embodied multiplicitous part of a simulation and through that I talk about karma and reincarnation and then the essay will most likely finish talking about artificial intelligence and this idea of a kind of mechanistic singularity where we create something in the image of ourselves that is inorganic and that decides that organic life is too messy and problematic so destroys it and then that goes back to this kind of Abrahamic uh, narrative of a judgment day and apocalypse. Mm. And from the Gnostic point of view, they believe that uh, the, the God in Abrahamic religions is actually this thing called the Demiurge, which is trying to manipulate um, people from a disembodied distance because it's envious of our ability to create. So its long game is to get rid of us so that it can't compare itself to anything else. And that's why you have monotheistic religions that have this almost neoliberal agenda that is to divide and conquer. Like for example, when you spoke to the uh, the woman in the in the kind of shop about who about like your magical practices, were yeah. they like surprised that like a Westerner was interested or no? That... They they were surprised in that they hadn't come, they hadn't ever met someone from England who practiced magic. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they were really happy to notice all the similarities in the way that uh, I thought from my perspective and the way that they thought from theirs. And there's almost this kind of filling the gaps that goes mm. back and forth where you start to... So that's why they showed you their sigil, something yeah. that was similar to the sigil magic yeah. that you chose now. Yeah. And then I think just that idea of exchange as well, like I took the time to sit and I carved candles for the woman uh, in the shop. And then the man uh, who had owned the shop for years um, he was really moved by the fact that I had made time to come in to do that and then so he gave me some Korean ritual instruments mm. and then on the day in between seeing them as well one of the other things that I had done ritual magic towards was to find um, a gong that had um, some provenance to it so rather than a shop bought thing something that had been worked with a ritual tool that already had some work done on it and in between seeing them when I was walking on the street, there was a guy with just 
a blanket and you know crappy mobile phones and CDs and stuff and then there's this gong and so I picked up the gong and I think it was about 30 quid which is really really cheap for what it was and so I bought I didn't haggle I just bought it immediately and when I took it to the shop the next day and I showed them this gong that I had bought um the Mudang turned it over and she saw that inscribed inside it was the name of a woman, a Mudang, who had owned it and her birthday and when she'd had it. And then she told me that she had died. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't say that she's dead inside, but she's like, oh, the owner of this is dead um, and it's yours now. And, um, yeah, it was kind of insinuated that it, that was, it was meant to be mine, which was very, like, touching. Um, and then because, you know, I'm interested in astrology and because I had a birth date, I drew up a natal chart for this woman who had passed away. And then that natal chart described much of her personality. I then did a This wasn't in the shop, this is later. No, this is later yeah. on, yeah. I then did a compatibility chart between her and me. <laughs> uh, natal charts, because compa- compatibility charts... <laughs> not are, sexy. No, no, they're not only useful <laughs> for dating, although they are really useful for dating. So you can avoid some absolute calamities. <laughs> Or you can avoid some really amazing opportunities to learn through suffering if you look at it karmically. (laughs) (laughs) So so who's robbing who there? I'm not sure. But yeah, and it described this relationship that we, uh, how our relationship would play out, which in this sense is between me and an inanimate reminder, you know, reminder that's left over uh, from her stuff. It was an amazing time. And I think one of the things I feel very enthusiastic about within this process is that um, <laughs> straight away the thing that pops into my head is that quote from Field of Dreams, which is hilarious because it's a Kevin Kev 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 film. Yeah, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> but like literally, there seems to be like a property to reality where if you create a space for something to happen, that thing is not only more likely to happen, but happens in a way that's so strangely relevant. Thanks so much to Ben for talking to me. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, We'll be back very soon with more episodes of the Bad Vibes Club podcast. Bye.